So we, uh, unless you guys want to be here for, you know, several hours uh, listening to me, uh, I don't have the time to go through the entire book of Hebrews, which is a pretty dense book. Um, Hebrews is actually, if you've ever read it through in one sitting, and I highly recommend you do if you have not, it is really written like a sermon. If you, you know, most, most of the books of the New Testament were meant to be read to a church congregation in one sitting. So if you were a citizen of Rome, uh, you know, a deacon or whatever would have come with the letter, this circular letter, and they would have read it. And you would have sat there and listened to the entire book of Romans in one sitting. If you were in Ephesus, you would have heard the whole book of Ephesus read in one sitting. And that's likewise with Hebrews. Hebrews is one giant book. And this, this letter was probably written to Jewish Christians who were tempted to turn back to their old Jewish ways and or perhaps to Christians who were tempted to turn to Judaism thinking that it was the superior religion. Perhaps they were being tempted by what Paul called uh, the Judaizers or the circumcision group. He refers to them in Acts. Uh, So perhaps Christians were being tempted to go towards that. Um, And the whole book of Hebrews, and I, I, I will tell you, I stole this from a great scholar. His name is Douglas Moo, Dr. Doug Moo. He's at uh, Wheaton College. But he summarized the book of Hebrews as this. I think this is beautiful. Let's see if we can get this up here. Um, Hebrews, oops, I think we skipped to the end there. It starts with the because we have. There, uh, there we go, cool. So this is the whole book of Hebrews in one kind of couple, couple slides here. Because we have a better revelation, there's the scripture references, a better rest, or Sabbath, if you will, a better high priest ministering at a better sanctuary, administering a better covenant, offering a better sacrifice. The next slide. We must Because of these things, we must move forward to attain the fullness of God's promised blessing through faith, right, chapter 11, through endurance, chapter 12, which we're going to camp out in today. And then I think there's one more. Is there more? No? Okay, that's it. Oh, yeah, that is it. (laughs) So, and then chapter 13 wraps it all up and it shows us kind of the, the practicals of how to do this. So this is really like a a summary of Hebrews. And so the title of my message is Hebrews is Better. You know, um, there are some people, and we still battle it today, um, where some people want to just reject the Old Testament wholeheartedly and and just be like, we don't do that anymore. We're Christians now. Um, But really the Old Testament is what guides us. It is the story from the very beginning that the whole arc of the Bible points to Jesus and the fulfillment of everything the Scripture and everything that Israel did and everything Israel didn't do um, that led us to our need for Jesus and the fulfillment that happened in Jesus and the fulfillment that will continue to happen through Jesus and into the new creation. Do you see? So we, we have to look at the Old Testament. However, we do live under a new covenant, right? Jesus said on the Last Supper, This is the blood of the new covenant, right? So 
there is a new covenant. There is a newness to it. But Hebrews makes it very clear. It isn't to supplant the Old Testament covenant. It is simply a better version. Does that make sense? It is a, because we have a better revelation. We have a better rest. We have a better high priest. We have a better sanctuary, better covenant, and better sacrifice. Hebrews is showing that we, it is the fullness and wholeness of what Old Testament worship was supposed to look like is now done in the fulfillment and the fullness of Jesus. Does that make sense? That's what Hebrews is all about, is that it's better. It is better. So the question we're left as we read Hebrews is, how does God expect us to respond to what Jesus has done and is still doing? Well, firstly... We are to imitate the faith of those who came before us. We find that in Hebrews chapter 11. That's the famous hall of faith, you know, the, all the, the faithful people that are listed there. Um, and then we pick up here, and oh, by the way, there is uh, somebody else is going to come preach this month that is going to talk about Hebrews 11. So we're just kind of out of order, but that's okay. You guys are going to go back to that. And here we pick up in chapter 12. And then there's one more chapter, chapter 13, which we're not going to cover, but I encourage you to, to look into that. And so these three chapters are really kind of the, the capstone, if you will, of Hebrews. Kind of ties it all together. And we, the, the, the beauty of, of this letter is that it, it ties it all together and shows us how all these better things that we have in the new covenant come to fullness and how we can live them out. So we're going to start here with, right at the beginning, Hebrews chapter 12 in verse 1. Let's read. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not, not grow weary and lose heart. We are to fix our eyes on Jesus because he, because he did these things. I love that, that sentence there. It says, for the joy set before him. So he had this joy right there. And because that joy was so great, he was willing to go all the way through by enduring the cross, scorning his shame, and sitting down at the right hand of the Father. What a motivator. What a motivator. And it's, it's sometimes hard for us to grasp this, and that's why we're to fix our eyes on Jesus because of that. I don't know if any of you guys, I was talking about running earlier. I used to run with Kevin. But um, has anybody here ever run a long distance with a heavy backpack before. Anybody like masochistic like me? Thank you. There's one. <laughs> so, or, you know, I used to run track and field and for the sprinters, they'd strap a parachute to your waist and you'd have to sprint as fast as you could. Um, and and uh, needless to say, it is harder to run when you are burdened. Weird. Weird how that works out, right? Um, anybody ever heard of Eliud Kipchoge? He is the world's greatest marathoner. He is a Kenyan runner, um, and he did this, well, he holds the world record in the marathon at two hours, one minute, nine seconds. That's pretty fast. (laughs) 
He also holds the unofficial title of being the first one to run a marathon in under two hours. So this was not in an actual race. They did this thing in Vienna, and they, he ran down these streets, and he had some other runners, their top, top, top runners run with him to sort of pace him, and there was this pace car, and everything was set up just right. But it was to show that it could be done. But let me give you an idea of how fast this is, okay? Because some of us might run, you know, we're like, yeah, you know, I'm pacing myself. I'm, I'm good, I'm good. Eliud Kipchoge is, is, is some sort of freak of nature, okay? This guy, in order to run an under two-hour marathon, he was running in excess of 13 miles an hour for 26.2 miles, because that's how long a marathon is. So they set up this uh, demonstration at some runner's expo one time, and they had a treadmill going at Eliud Kipchoge's uh, pace. And these runners were just like, and these are, like, this is a running conference, so people that come are runners, right? And they get on this treadmill, and they just fly off, because this guy was so fast. So he's basically sprinting for 26.2 miles. So have fun with that. If you want to try it, go for it. Um, yeah, I mean, seriously, go, go, go find a long parking lot and have somebody drive their car at 13 miles an hour and see if you can keep up with it. I mean, golly, this is, this is crazy. Um, this is running the race. This is the endurance that is talked about in this passage. So what is supposed to motivate us to run this race? Like, what motivates Eliud Kipchoge? Is it just to win a medal? I mean, he doesn't win a whole lot of money doing these races. And sure, he has sponsors, but this guy is no billionaire. You know, he's not, he's not living large. What, but what is supposed to motivate us to run this race, this spiritual race? Well, it's very simple. Jesus. Because he was the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He went before us, and he did it the right way. He is the ultimate human. He is what we are supposed to do in our fullness as a human. Right? Every per- I don't even know everybody here, but I can tell you, because I just know, everybody here is a sinner. You know how I know that? Because none of y'all are Jesus. And so because of that, we know that we are not able to live the fullness of how God called us to be as a human. But Jesus did. Jesus is that perfecter, that pioneer of faith. And we need to imitate that and grow into that. Jesus endured immense suffering, of course, not just on the cross, but even beforehand. He endured tons of mental and emotional um, grief as well. I mean, consider his disciples all abandoned him in his most needed hour. Yet he remained faithful and he triumphed. His example inspires us to persevere even in the face of adversity. And there are folks that have come before us. Verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, right? The great cloud of witnesses are those Christians who lived a faithful life and died and are now in this cloud of witnesses that have come before us. And they also, in a way, set an example for us to follow because they also followed in the footsteps of Jesus. And that should bring us great consolation, I think, is to understand there is a great cloud of witnesses in some sort of mysterious way sort of cheering us on as we run the race as well. And that should bring us great joy. That should bring us great joy. You know, to, 
to steal a phrase that is in Corinthians and Hebrews, um, we are to imitate Jesus by acting in faith, enduring in hope, and relating to one another in love. Let's keep reading here. Chapter 12, verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have completely, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. But later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. This is a one of those passages where the writer of Hebrews kind of sticks it to you, right? It's pretty heavy hitting here. But it's important because we have to embrace God's discipline. But think about how antithetical this is to our American culture. And we even see it in a vast swath of church uh, culture in our world today, right? We, we call it the prosperity gospel, right? If you live these ways, then your life will be better. Even some of our Christian movies are slated this way. You know, somebody was a drug dealer and a prostitute, and then they found Jesus and everything was better. I'm like, well, no, you might have to serve some prison time for the drugs you dealt and, you know, whatever. Um, there are consequences to our action. But the point is, is that it is not supposed to be hunky-dory if you're a Christian. In fact, the primitive church, the early, early church, they actually found validation in that you were a true Christian by the persecution and the hardship that you went through. If you were undergoing suffering, hardship, persecution, and so on, then it proved that you were a true Christian. Isn't that crazy? How backwards is that from our world today? Right? We, we will undergo discipline. Um, our loving Father both, well, let's start here with our earthly father. Hopefully, uh, not everybody had fathers, but we probably had some sort of father figure in our life. Uh, and even our mothers probably disciplined us to some degree as we grew up, right? Um, our heavenly father carries even more for us, like infinitely more than our parents here on earth. And therefore, he also will discipline us to grow us. You know, most of the discipline I received as a child uh, from my parents and even my teachers was in the form of suffering. <laughs> and this suffering actually helped me to see 
the world for what it is. It, it kind of woke me up, if you will, right? Um, I grew up, uh, my early childhood was out in Akron, Colorado, if you know where that is. It's way out in the sticks in northeastern Colorado, just south of Sterling, just uh, west of Ray, which is where all the storm chasers hang out. Um, and because, you know, this was in the 80s, uh, so it was a small town, everybody knew everybody, and so every parent sort of, you know, put every kid in their place. And teachers, I had a teacher who would give you a switch on the hand with the ruler. You know, nowadays that would be not allowed. Um, and of course, I was definitely spanked by my parents. But the principal also had a paddle in the, in the office hanging that was like, you know, if you were in really big trouble. You know, of course, these things are all, you know, big no-nos in today's world. But the understanding was that discipline was necessary to train this ch these children, me included, to grow up into the world that we live in, which is, hey, you know, your choices have consequences, and the world is full of that. So, you know, you might as well learn now while you're young and under your parents' roof so that you can grow. You know, as I've grown up, one of the things that's maybe not been good is that I have undergone uh, a lot of suffering in my life. And so one of the things I struggle with is actually embracing God's discipline. And what I mean is this is, I would much rather have an easy life than go through suffering and discipline. Anybody else? I don't know. Maybe just me. Okay, one. One person. Okay. Um, I would much rather have an easy life, but yet my life continues to be plagued by suffering and different forms of discipline. And so one of the things I sort of jokingly say, and I'm, I'm learning this is bad, I jokingly say that I, when things start to go well and get easy, then I sort of brace for impact and wait for the next thing. But I, I've come to realize this is probably a pretty worldly way of, of thinking. That if I'm just waiting for the next, you know, sub piece of suffering, then I'm not leaning into, I'm not embracing God's discipline for my life. And therefore, maybe I'm not learning everything that I need to learn from these different trials. So I've been humbled to realize I probably shouldn't joke about that because I'm not really embracing God's discipline for my life and the importance of these things. You know, I, I mentioned that that summary of Hebrews was written by Dr. Doug Moo. Um, Doug Moo also said this, and I, I love this quote. He says, Discipline is suffering that breaks up our connection to the world so that we can stay focused on the eternal. I'm going to read that one more time. I love this. Discipline is suffering that breaks up our connection to the world so that we can stay focused on the eternal. How good is that? How good is that? Our spiritual growth process is through suffering and discipline. I don't know if anybody has ever grown except through suffering and discipline. When we look back at our lives, we can probably point to the most, the times where we grew the most, the times we learned the most, was in the midst of suffering and then looking backwards, right? It's not when things are going hunky-dory. And often our relationships are most often bound by our friends, our brothers and sisters, who have been in the trenches and fought with us through those times of suffering and discipline as well, and then have come out on the other side. Because we follow Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, and endure those things. 
So we should not despise God's discipline, but instead we should embrace it, knowing that it shapes us and it draws us nearer to God. Let's keep reading here in verse 14. Make a a few efforts. Make an effort. Make an effort when you feel like it. Is that what it says? No, it says make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Wow. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. This uh, section in Hebrews 12, from a literary perspective, is, is really transitional. But what's the message here? Well, the message is that you need to appropriate God's grace while you can. While you're here on earth, living in whatever circumstance you're in, you need to live and spread God's grace while you can. Even the ancient Jews, and well, even, even some secular Jews nowadays, they, they have this, this concept of spreading shalom. Shalom is the word we translate to peace. But it's not just peace. It's sort of like all systems go. You know, like when you're watching the uh, rockets launch or whatever, and they do all these checklist things, and then when they're all done, they say, all systems go. That's shalom. All systems go. We are to bring some level of shalom to the world. And when do we do that? Later? When we retire? When it's convenient? When I don't have bills to pay? No. Right now. Esau sold his inheritance because he was hungry. After hunting. We look back and they go, what a fool. And yet we are tempted to do this every single day. I don't have time. I'm busy. I'm too hungry. I can't do this because of blah, 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 blah. You know, or I have, oh, I'm, I'm hurt because of the past. Or somebody said something that hurt my feelings. Okay, cool. Appropriate God's grace while you can because you might get hit by a bus tomorrow. You do not know when your life will end. But we do know this. There is 100% mortality rate in this room. Every single person is going to die. So appropriate God's grace while you can. That's the point of this little little segment of this passage. It's very simple. We're called to pursue peace with all people and strive for holiness. Why should we strive for holiness? Well, is it so that we can earn God's love? So we can somehow attain to this? No. As the great Dallas Willard, if you've never read any of his books, you should. He says... Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. If you think the things you're doing are earning your salvation, then you've you're, you're, you're got all your, your um, focus is, is wrong. But if you're, if you're doing it because you care and you love God and you want to... Produce, you know, produce action through your effort. That's, that's great. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what Esau failed to do. And that's what we are called to do. We want people to see the Lord. Amen? 
Our lives should reflect that. Our lives should reflect that in our own holiness. If it does not, people will not see the Lord in us. We have to be holy so that people see the Lord in us and want to do the same as well. How is your example to your neighbor? Do you love your literal neighbor? Do you know the names of your literal neighbors? Like these are the things we are called to do. Are you living at peace? Or do you hold grudges? Is your life holy? And if you don't know, holy literally means to be set apart. Set apart for some, some purpose that God has. We should stand out from the world by our holiness. And through that example, call people to God. This is where Esau failed, and this is where we shall not fail. So what will throw us off in our faith? Well, bitterness. This passage talks about that, bitter roots, right? It will not only mess us up, but it will, it says, defile many. In fact, there's a way you can actually translate that Greek word, many, as all things. You can defile all things. So if you have bitterness and you let that bitter root grow up, it can defile all things. It can defile many things. It can even defile your view of God. If you're bitter because you're bitter at some person because you, you know, whatever they said, something that hurts your feelings, you might think my bitterness is just simply towards them. No, 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 no. Your bitterness now has affected every facet of your life and you might even be bitter toward God. So deal with the bitterness. And how do you, any of y'all who are gardeners or farmers, how do you get roots out? Or how do you get, I just gave the answer out. Answer way, how do you get weeds out? You gotta get the whole root, right? And sometimes those roots are real long and you gotta pull the whole thing up. So bitterness is a serious thing. We have to battle it. What else can throw us off? Well, the enticement of sin and the short-sightedness of worldly pleasures. We live in a society that is rife with pleasures. And we might think, oh, you mean pleasures like drugs and sex and things like that? No, I mean like binging on Netflix, like not wanting to wake up in the morning, not wanting to, you know, whatever. Maybe even not even entering into suffering with others to, to be with them, you know? If you've ever been called to fast, like, are you willing to do that? Or, oh, that's too hard, I can't do it. Like, there are things we should do that call us outside of the worldliness that we live in. It is so, we live in such a comfortable society. And I am constantly reminded of how, how easy it is just to simply settle into the comfortableness that is America. And in Colorado, Right? We love the outdoors, right? And we, you, you hear it all the time. Oh, I see God in the mountains, you know, or whatever, when I'm skiing or whatever, which is great. But do you see God in the mundaneness of your day-to-day life? Do you see God in folding the laundry and then doing the dishes and changing the diapers? This is where we too shall see, should see God. And in this way, we will set ourselves as holy. We will deal with our bitterness we will enter into this place. So let's keep reading here. Verse 18. And let's remember, guys, we need to imitate Jesus by acting in faith, enduring in hope, and relating in love. Let's read. Verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or 
uh, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was being commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks to a better word than the blood of Abel. There it is, better. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has once more, or sorry, uh, but the, uh, I, sorry, I skipped a line here. Let me back up here, verse 26. At, this, at the time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Wow, that is quite a passage. You know, this, uh, <clears throat> this is the glorious promise of Mount Zion. The author of Hebrews here contrasts the experience of the Israelites at Mount Sinai with the believer's experience at Mount Zion. So if you've ever read Exodus and you read about the Israelites coming to this mountain, it was quite scary. So when Moses went up to the mountain, he wasn't coming back down. They were probably like, yeah, he probably died. And then they, you know, made a golden calf and that didn't go well. But it's quite reasonable to understand that they thought he was dead because this mountain was very scary and he was gone for a long time and he didn't have a cell phone to call them and tell them tell them what was going on so um but what's really interesting here is the author contrasts this experience in saying is mount sinai bad no of course not mount sinai is where god ushered in israel as his chosen nation to bring about Israel, bring about, you know, Jesus and all the fulfillments, right, and things. But it's not that Mount Sinai is bad, but that Mount Zion is better. It says it right there, right? Um, the sprinkled blood that speaks to a better word than the blood of Abel. This is a better mountain. This is a climactic kind of part of Hebrews here. Because this is the better blessing of God. What I think is really interesting is that the Mount, Mount uh, Sinai, they list all these things off, right? You, uh, they can't, it can't be touched. It's burning with fire. It's dark. There's gloom. There's storm. Trumpet blasts. And you, know, you don't talk. And there's animals that are going to die if they touch it. And even Moses is freaked out. And Moses saw the face of God, okay? 
So this is a scary place. And then you contrast it to Zion, and Zion is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. The church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. God, the judge of all, is there. The spirits of the righteous are made perfect here. Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant. He is the priest in the heavenly tabernacle doing this work for us. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks to a better word than the blood of Abel. We just see here that Mount Zion is the better mountain. And we get to worship at the foot of Mount Zion. We should respond with reverence and awe in our speaking to God. Right? This whole part here in verse 25 talks about this. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. And then it goes on and on talks about God and how God speaks to us. What I think is really cool is that this is tying back to Hebrews chapter 1. Let's go there real quick. And the point of this, there's, it's sort of bookends. So you have Hebrews 12 here talking about how God's speaking to us. And if you go all the way back to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse, verse 1, it says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. He's been speaking to us the whole time. Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 12, and everything in between is bookended. God has been speaking to us throughout all these ages to point to Jesus, to point to Mount Zion, which is the mount. The, the holy mountain that we are receiving as an inheritance. Isn't this great? We're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. God will shake everything. And what lasts is this kingdom that we get to inherit. So what is our calling? Our calling is to be thankful. We need to be thankful. And what else? We need to worship God. And that is how we worship at this mountain. Mount Zion. As you continue to read Hebrews 13, I encourage you to read it, uh, the writer gives some more uh, details as far as what it looks like to love one another. But we are called to a better way. And that is the message of Hebrews. How does God expect us to respond to what Jesus has done and all the work that he has done and is still doing in the heavenly tabernacle? We are to imitate Jesus by acting in faith, enduring in hope, and relating in love. Amen. Thank you, guys.